Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text for this, the first Sunday of the church year and the first Sunday in the season of Advent is from the Gospel reading. And St. Matthew writes, Then the disciples brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So far our text. Dear friends in our Lord Jesus Christ, proper reception can be critical. I'm talking about protocol. The proper way of meeting someone or greeting someone and sometimes even seating someone. Important people, whether foreign dignitaries or guests at events of state or even local official, officials, there's, there's a right way, there's a proper way to do it. And so if it'll help you plan for the next time you have guests over, this is how it works. The President of the United States, if present, outranks all others. Second ranked, if present, is the Vice President of the United States. There are no exceptions to these if you're holding an event of state. If you're just having him over for dinner, you seat him however you want. Note also that within his or her home state, the governors ranked first if the president and vice president are, are not in attendance. At a function hosted within his or her own city, the mayor is highest rank. Of course, in the absence of the president and the vice president and the governor. There's protocol. Protocol, international protocol, has just as many do's and don'ts. It's said that when greeting a state dignitary from another land with whom you'd have little or no familiarity, then formality is the key. And honorifics should be used. Honorifics, the technical term for those titles that confer honor. It's said they should always be used. When making introductions, it's important to introduce the junior person, to the senior person, regardless of gender, regardless of international origin, details to all this protocol. Royalty, too, has its own way of meeting and greeting. What do you do when you encounter Malaysian royalty? Well, as good red-blooded Americans, we'd likely extend our hand in greeting. No, don't do that. Protocol says let them extend their hand to you first. And when greeting the king, protocol decrees that your hand should first be brought together and and then brought to your forehead. Protocol. All this protocol, how we meet and how we greet, and how we welcome a right. Well, you know that that's not exactly what we meant just a moment ago when we sang, Oh Lord, how shall I meet you? How welcome you a right? We're talking, we weren't rather, talking about the technicalities of proper protocol and etiquette. After all, what does the handbook say when it comes to meeting the king of all kings? The one of whom scripture says every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What would be the etiquette? Would it involve spreading our cloaks, the best of our cloaks before him at least? Would it consist of raising our voices in due praise? I'm sure, 
but exactly what the perfect praise of heaven will look like and sound like. I guess for heaven we'll have to to wait for that. But do remember what Christ said, even in the context of our reading today, from the lips of infants and children, our Lord has perfected praise. Whatever the protocol, though, whatever the etiquette for receiving the King of Kings, this we know for certain, that our very highest, our very highest praise would be the very least that we could offer. Our highest praise would be fitting, but eagerness, eagerness too would be only fitting. And isn't that how creatures should Isn't that how we ought to receive our Creator? The well-known hymnist Isaac Watts, you know his name perhaps, English hymn writer who wrote at least 15 of the hymns we have in our hymnal. Isaac Watts thought that eagerness is something that should accompany those who welcome their Creator. He thought it was how we ought to, rather he articulated well how we ought to rightfully and properly receive our Creator King. And you know the words with which he used to to do this. We'll sing them in a matter of weeks now. He wrote, Joy to the world. The Lord is come, let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room in heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, he wrote. The Savior reigns, let all their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Rocks, hills, and plains, even the very stones would cry out, wouldn't they? As our Lord said, even the very stones would cry out if that rightful and that eager praise by mankind were silenced. Eagerness. It's only fitting. But notice I didn't say it was only natural. Because natural it is not. Natural it is not. By nature, not by created nature, mind you, but by our sinful nature, we human creatures do not gladly receive him who comes to us. And here, the fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, they could teach us quite a lesson. And that's what's so ironic, that Christ Jesus didn't come into the world for the fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains. He came for us. He came for you and me. Christ Jesus came into the world, Paul says, to save sinners like you and me. It's like we regularly confess. It's like we did just a moment ago. For us men, for mankind, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, not for any other creature. Not for any other creature, even, not even for the angels. Do you ever think of that? Not even for the angels. And not only did he come to us, he became us. That's what we confess when we say, and he was incarnate, he was enfleshed, enfleshed by the Holy Spirit and was made man. And was made you and me. He is not ashamed, says the writer of Hebrews, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Which of the angels can say that? And yet by nature we don't embrace his coming to us and his coming for us to his own, his own flesh and blood. 
He came, and for his own he came, and how did his own receive him? St. John tells us how we did. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Or how did Isaiah put it? He was despised and rejected of men. Cold receptivity to Christ. That's a story as old as sin itself, but yet unfolding anew with each new day, for there's nothing new under the sun. Even for us Christians, that old sinful nature with all of its old tendencies, it sticks around, doesn't it? That's why when our Lord does come to us and when he does come for us, as he does today on, a, on this Sunday, on any Sunday, at the end of a long and a hard week perhaps, so hard and long week of, of work or, or school, or a week full of worries and concerns, that old nature, that's the reason why at the end of a week like this one on Sunday, when our Lord comes to us, why at times we find it so difficult to come to Him. We're not always so eager to greet Him and, and to meet Him and to receive Him and receive from Him the good things that He brings. And whether he's coming to forgive us, as he does in this divine service, or he's coming to fashion us, as he does through those difficult and those, those challenging situations of life, whichever and, and however he comes to us, we're not always so eager, are we, to, to embrace his coming. We're not always so eager to embrace his coming. That's the truth. And that's the problem. But you know, that's also the point. That's also the point. His coming isn't determined by our proper eagerness to receive him. Or maybe I should say our improper meagerness in receiving him. It's not determined by that. For, and for this we can be eternally grateful because if it was determined by this, he would never come. He would never come to us or for us. But rather, but rather friends, God in his, in his goodness... In God's gracious fashion, His coming, whether it be into the flesh at Christmas or in flesh and blood into the bread and wine at, at Holy Communion, His coming rests with His eagerness to receive us. I'm going to say that again. His coming rests with His eagerness to receive us and not the other way around. And that's why. That's why I think Luke records of this same account, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's why in Luke's account, he records that Jesus, after concluding his preaching, he writes, went on ahead to Jerusalem. He went on ahead to Jerusalem. True enough, the crowds that received him in Jerusalem that day gave up the shout that was certainly due him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that's not why he came to receive their praise. Don't you think he knew well how sour by that Good Friday, how, how sour the sweet Sunday chant would have become? By Friday, you know what they were shouting. No longer blessed is he, but crucify him. Jerusalem was not the receptive city to God that at first our text might indicate. In fact, it's for her habit of cold and cruel reception that Christ had lamented over her. Remember what he said. Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her on behalf of me to speak for me as I come to you. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing. But you were not willing, Jerusalem. So he said, I say to you, you shall not see me. Again, until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But now with our text today, that time had come. That time at Jerusalem had come, but it wasn't because Jerusalem then or any of us in our lives today of ourselves changed then or or changed now our receptivity to him. It was because Jesus Christ, undaunted, And undeterred by human reception and human reaction because Jesus, for the sake of human redemption, went on ahead. Went on ahead to the cross. The cold and the callous and the ungrateful way that humankind handled his creator and nailed him to a cross. That should have sealed our fate eternally. And yet even upon that cross, despised and rejected as he was, his love, his love, his love did not grow cold. And it did not grow sour. But love spoke, saying, Father, forgive them. You heard it last week. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. It was not the warmth of our reception that brought him into the flesh. It was not the warmth of our reception that brought him to the cross. It's never the tenderness of our hearts that brings him still to us in word and in sacrament. It's the warmth and the tenderness of Christ's heart that brought him then And that keeps him coming to us still. Recall again the words of our sermon hymn. Listen to the way that hymnist Paul Gerhard, who we we commemorate this year in his 400 years of, as you know, of service to the church and to our Lord. Listen to the way that Paul Gerhard, this poet, as he's been called, this poet of the cross, so beautifully spells all of that out. In the last verse of that hymn that we sang today, he writes, Love caused your incarnation. Love brought you down to me. Your thirst for my salvation procured my liberty. O love beyond all telling that led you to embrace in love, all love excelling our lost and fallen race. What an embrace. What an embrace. And St. Paul reminds us of it when he says, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what Scripture says. St. John says it too. Make sure that, that it's understood when he writes, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he did it first. He loved us and sent his son To be the propitiation for our sins. For your sins and mine. All of our sins. And every last one of those sins that bothers you still today. It's done and taken care of in Christ. 
And because he did, because he did so love us, then we in turn, we love him too. Martin Luther captured this sequence, this proper sequence, in simple eloquence, the way that he so often does, in simple eloquence, in that communion hymn of his that we sing from time to time, O Lord, we praise thee, bless thee, and adore thee, you know the hymn. And I think you know this phrase from the hymn too. Lord, your kindness so much did move you that your blood now moves us to love you. All our debt you have paid, peace with God once more is made. O Lord, have mercy. That's his embrace of us. His embrace. I'm reminded of a piece of of rather modern and contemporary Christian artwork. It's a very popular piece these days. Perhaps some of you have seen it. It well might be that some of you have it hanging in your homes. It depicts Christ Jesus welcoming a man to himself in a very full and a very warm embrace. Now as you view the picture, the man's back is to you. And so you, you can't see his face. Might as well be you. No doubt it is you. Can't see his face, but you don't need to see his face. Because this painting's not about his face. You don't need to see his face because you can see the face of Christ who so dearly embraces him. In his face, Christ's face, is the entire meaning, the entire tension, intention of this piece of artwork revealed. For in his face, in the expression in his face, you see all at once eagerness. Eagerness and joy and love and gladness. Like that of the father over the returning prodigal son. All of these things all at one time and so much more captured by the artist in that one single facial expression of the embracing Christ. Friends, we begin this Advent season today with the thought, O Lord, how shall I greet thee? Friends, how has he greeted us? How has he welcomed us? And when we consider it, then we can't help but raise our voices in eager and thankful praise and say with them all, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.